This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly alongside Scarlett Fu here with you as we try and figure out all the different inputs, as they say, into this market, into this business world. And the primary one for so many of us is, of course, the state of the virus. We've got just the expert to help us make sense of it all, Dr. Bruce Farber, the chief of infectious diseases at Northwell Health. He joins us on the phone from Manhasset, New York. Dr. Farber, really nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for having me, Jason. So tell us, first of all, New York City and its environs, the tri-state area, feels pretty different from what we read in the headlines. And as we talk to colleagues and friends and family across the country, what's the state of play uh, where you are? Yeah, it's dramatically better than it was, obviously, months ago, and it sounds like it's dramatically better than it is in many parts of the country. We're sort of in the eye of the hurricane in the sense that things are quiet. Uh, our healthcare facilities have single-digit admissions of COVID patients, not zero, but generally one to three per day. The total hospital census is dramatically down to double digits. Uh, many of the chronic patients who are still around are severe, long-term survivors that are struggling to get off ventilators. Um, And uh, the number of sick patients being admitted is dramatically lower. Um, So things are good. Elective surgery has restarted. People are screened regularly before coming into the hospital. When they come into the hospital for even treat and release things, they're often screened, and they're screened before any elective surgery. So things are good. They're certainly not normal, and I don't anticipate they will be for a long time. You know, um, the New York Times has a map on its website that tracks the number of cases across the country, and the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and New England, are in the best position, right? We're light yellow versus dark red for uh, Florida and California. However, New Jersey's transmission rate, according to Bloomberg, a story on Top Worldwide, has risen to 1.14, a 13-week high. Dr. Farber, do you think it's inevitable that New York City will also see a rise? I think it's, uh, I don't know inevitable, but it's certainly a risk, and I think we're preparing for it. It's hard to stay locked down, number one, and it's hard to prevent people from reintroducing the virus from other parts of the country, and that's a reality. Although, as you know, there's quarantines for, what, 31 states of people coming in. They're impossible to enforce. They're difficult to monitor. And uh, we see a lot of people coming up from Florida, you know, who are nervous in other states, who have relatives and other people in the, in the Northeast. So, you know, inevitable, I don't know, but it's certainly a risk. And it's hard to imagine that um, there aren't going to be bumps along the way. Well, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Farber and Scarlett uh, raised this uh, as we were preparing for this segment. Very rightly, we were just talking about this party in Southampton, uh, you know, that the CEO of Goldman Sachs was the DJ for and, you know, it upset the governor of New York, 
pretty tremendously, there must be a lot of heightened interest uh, and concern on the part of public officials. You talk to them, I know, you and your colleagues do. How are the public officials feeling about kind of where we are and what are they most worried about? I think people let their guard down, quite frankly. I'm always amazed how intelligent people know what they should be doing, but, you know, a few months go by, they don't hear as much, the hospitals aren't busy, and they let their guard down. And um, it's not right. I agree with the governor in this instance. Um, You cannot have large parties. You know, you can't open up these bars. You can't have crowded restaurants and crowded parties and weddings and concerts. We're just not there yet. And I don't know when we're going to be there, but whenever that happens, there's going to be a cluster. We've certainly seen clusters just in a couple of local retirement parties and other birthday parties. Um, Sometimes they're... uh, outside, but most often they're in enclosed spaces where people take off the masks to eat and drink. Okay, you can't have large parties, and a few people would compare school to partying, but can you have kids go back to school then? So, as you know, it's an extraordinary complicated uh, issue, but I would summarize it by saying the safety of the schools is going to be predominantly dependent by how low the transmission rates are in the community in which the school is located. So clearly it's not going to be safe to open schools in southern Florida and Houston at the present time. In New York, that's a different story. I mean, it's as safe as it's going to be. At some point in time, we're going to have to open schools. We're not going to have closed schools for years and years and years. And no matter how optimistic you are about a vaccine, I don't think there's any realistic way this thing is coming to an end within the next year, even if we have a good vaccine. So... I think it is safe to carefully open schools, but it's not going to be fail-proof. And there are going to be outbreaks. There are going to be little clusters. They just have to be whacked down when they occur. You have to have good protocols. You have to have careful monitoring. You have to have available testing. And you have to be prepared that it's not going to be perfect. And we've only got about a minute left, and then we're going to continue the conversation. Does that mean schools may open and then close and open and close? Yes, I think that means that. And you'll see, hopefully, not widespread opening and closing, but yes, there'll be schools and classrooms and parts of a school that may close. I mean, there are pods, you know. Good programs have little pods where the kids don't interact with other pods. And that way, when there's a little outbreak, it'll be limited to a relatively small number of people or teachers. And yeah, I think that's the new norm. We've talked about schools. We've talked about the transmission rate rising in New Jersey, what it means for New York City. Dr. Farber, I want to ask you about sports. Who's your team? The Mets. The Mets. Ah, okay. Well, the Mets so far have not gotten entangled in this Marlins, Yankees, Phillies situation where games have been canceled and uh, now there are 17 total reported cases on the Marlins. How do we get this? Well, let me let me start all over. I look at what happened in South Korea. Their teams have been able to play. They were in a bubble, and now they've started to allow some baseball fans back into the stadium. It, we're asking questions about whether the MLB season will be completely terminated, uh, given what's happening with the Marlins. How could they have done this better? Did, it, did they just need to go into a bubble that they refused to do? Yes. I mean, in essence, and I've been involved uh, for full disclosure with advising the NHL, And um, first of all, it's extraordinarily difficult. And secondly, you know, South Korea does not have the background of community COVID that South Florida has right now. And thirdly, you have to be really committed to vigorously enforcing that bubble. And any leaks are basically catastrophic. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think it's going to be very difficult for 
any collegiate sport to be played. I know the NCAA has not made a final determination as leaving it to their conferences, but I don't think anybody feels good that that's going to happen for any sport, at least in the fall. Um, I think football is going to have an incredibly difficult time pulling this off. Basketball, I thought, had a chance. Their bubble seemed to be very secure, but, you know, it's very difficult to maintain that bubble and to maintain people not cheating, having contacts, visitors, somebody bringing it in, and then it's all over. Yeah, because it just takes one, right, in many it takes one. In many cases. It takes one, exactly. And I would have thought baseball would have been the easiest for the obvious reasons in terms of, you know, then it's not like football and basketball. Yeah, the players aren't up in each other's faces or anything. Yeah. It's a naturally social distance sport. Um, tell us a little bit more about what happens with the NHL. I mean, are they bubbled? Are they, they're certainly in full gear, right? And they all have uh, the, the fishbowl, the shield, so that they're they not do. breathing on top of each other. They do, they do, and their time facing each other is actually pretty limited because the game is so fast-moving and the periods are relatively small and there are five men coming in and out of the games very quickly. Um, the issue is really not, I don't believe, on ice. I think the issue, yeah. like with the baseball players, is much more important what's happening off the field mm. than on the field. The field you can control and is probably reasonably safe, but, boy, it's a long time to put people in a bubble, and they have to be willing to buy into it um, and really not cheat at all. Yeah, well, and clearly that was one of the many things that broke down between the players and the owners on the baseball side. So let's talk briefly, if we can. Only got a couple minutes left here, Dr. Farber. We could talk to you all day. Uh, vaccines. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci, he's got some optimism over something happening in the fall, late fall. How optimistic are you that we'll see a vaccine in any meaningful dose uh, from a broad perspective in 2020? Uh, well, we're all optimistic that the messenger RNA vaccines will be much easier to produce in large quantities than previous vaccines if they work. Um, I'm still cautiously optimistic, but I think it's really a stretch to look at 2020. I think realistically, end of first quarter 2021 would be a realistic stretch goal. We still haven't seen the results of a clinical trial. It takes time. You have to see, you know, if the virus is, in, if the vaccine, excuse me, is extremely effective, then the results will be forthcoming very quickly, particularly if it's tested in a hot zone where there are a lot of people. They're testing in Brazil. And, uh, you know, but if the vaccine is not as effective as we hope, then it could take a long time, even if it has moderate success. So right. I don't think we should count on 2020. I mean, granted, that would be a phenomenal surprise if it happened. All right. We're going to leave it there. And we were we are going to have you back very soon. I really appreciate the insights. I feel like I learned a lot from Dr. Bruce Farber, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Northwell Health, one of the biggest in the state of New York and its environs. He joined us on the phone from Manhasset, New York. Well, let's dive into the magazine. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is with us from Massachusetts, as is Christina Lindblad. Where have you been, my friend? We miss you, stalwart of our weekend show, global economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. She joins us on the phone from New York City. So, so happy she's with us. And Joel, I want to start with you because this is a great global economics story and this is just right in the wheelhouse of of the stuff we love to cover looking beyond sort of our domestic woes here and understanding how this virus and how the global economy is all panning out 
Yeah, um, plenty of woes uh, here stateside. Um, other countries also have woes, yeah. and sometimes it's not even uh, related to the coronavirus. Uh, and we're talking about Argentina specifically here, um, which is a is a topic that um, Christina has actually covered uh, for for years because you know Argentina has been sort of a a, a train wreck in in many ways. But the, the main thing that we kind of unearthed in this story that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, the coronavirus is, is obviously making things difficult for businesses. But Argentina on its own has also become incredibly difficult uh, for doing business. And companies, uh, virus aside, are, are actually pulling the cord and, and leaving. Uh, Christina, what were some of the examples that we found um, in this story? Um, well, one of them is LATAM, which is an airline that's headquartered in Chile, which compared to Argentina is a much more policy-stable uh, country. And then a whole slew of automakers and auto part companies, uh, including um, Exalta, which is a Warren Buffett-owned company. Um, and then um, besides the ones that are leaving, you know, there um, for example, companies like Ford and Volkswagen that have stopped investment plans and, you know, have put them on ice for now. So those are companies that um, don't see much upside in continuing to do business in Argentina. Investors have also learned the hard way that perhaps it's not a great thing to lend to Argentina either. (laughs) (laughs) Are there still investors who are who think that it, it's worthwhile to make an investment to that country, given the track record here? Um, Argentina, of course, deciding not to repay its debt. That's right. It's ninth default, uh, and it's currently uh, trying to work out terms with bondholders. I, I think until it does that, it's probably, it cannot access international markets. Also, it's in the third year of a recession, and this year the economy is forecast to contract by 12%, which is the most on record. So there aren't too many reasons right now, I think, that anyone would want to be lending money to Argentina. And so, but it's also, you yeah, know, go ahead, I, th- I think there's there's a certain horizon which, um, you know, Argentina has tried to establish with the uh, international community, you know, like the 100-year uh, offering that they had. So, it, you know, the, the, I, but I do think it's profound that, you know, as, as hard as, um, as the U.S. is getting hit, as hard as, uh, as places in Europe has been hit, and, you know, we're seeing Brazil reel. The thing that emerges with Argentina is just that we have these these real kind of like ingrained problems that just make it a very difficult place to do business, which is why, you know, it ends up getting ranked at the bottom of all of these things. So so then along comes a virus and it makes it um, all, all the worst. Um, and, you know, even then, like Christina, like Argentina was among the first to actually impose um, lockdown restrictions. In March. And, and, what's, and they're all yeah, exactly. gradually. Yeah. So, and I mean, actually, what's really most amazing is that a lot of companies are actually picking up and moving to Brazil, a country that's having a much, much worse uh, issue with dealing with the, the, the public health emergency. And so help us understand the, the labor side of this. I mean, the labor unions, I feel like somewhere in my memory, we've talked to you about this. As, as Joel said, you've been tracking the Argentine economy very closely, you and your colleagues at Bloomberg Business Week. I mean, the whole labor union side of this is a really important one that everybody needs to understand. Well, they've been uh, traditionally powerful for a very long time, but their power is always enhanced 
under left-leaning governments, particularly the Peronists, uh, which have a history of basically of co-opting the labor movement. And right now, in, I mean, you some, in some situations in other countries, when you have deep recessions, labor becomes more pliant, right, and is willing to give concessions. That's not happening in Argentina because they know that they have a government that is basically kind of backing them up. And the government has, you know, instituted policies like, you know, preventing companies from doing layoffs, and and there have been incidents in which, in which you know, um, unions have been had very like, you know, kind of um, hard and and even often sometimes violent relations with management, uh, and that has been, you know, and that has been getting more intense lately. We talk a lot about Argentina's history. Um, in the story, you cite that the country has spent a third of its modern history in recession, and growth has been hard to find over the past decade. They keep changing leaders. There's a new leader right now, Alberto Fernandez, who took office in December. Uh, he, of course, is trying to drum up the happy talk. He talks about how Argentina continues to be a country that structurally has a lot of natural wealth. What is the source of Argentina's natural wealth? What, what are its resources that, that render it wealthy? It's one of the world's greatest agriculture producers. Um, it has oil uh, down in the south, which actually has not really, it has, um, you know, been able to um, really develop this, these fields through hydraulic fracturing, and especially now that will be difficult with, it, with the state of the market now. Um, and it does have a consumer market uh, that is, you know, until fairly recently, I mean, people were pretty well off by the standards of Latin America. So, but it's, a, a lot of the problem is this, there's just policy insecurity. Um, all the time things are changing. Right now, businesses and consumers, I have to say, are having to cope with currency controls that basically there's a tax was imposed this year so that if you want to buy a ticket to travel abroad, you're paying a 30% tax. Oof. If you want to buy dollars to, to uh, put them in, in, de- in deposit, because you're basically hedging against the continued devaluation of the peso, that also a 30% tax. So it's just really becoming just, I mean, companies are just saying enough. Yeah. Uh, we can't operate here with all these constraints. Well, into Scarlett's earlier question, investors, it feels like, or at least a lot of investors are saying, Enough is enough as well. You really I don't need this drama. Stomach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got enough uh, in other places. All right, Christina Lindblad, great to hear your voice. Global Economics Editor for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us from New York. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, joined us from Massachusetts. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Scarlett Fu here in for Carol Masser with Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Business Week. We now want to bring in Jed Kolko, who is chief economist at Indeed, which is a search engine for job listings. And Jed, we've talked to you several times in the past about the labor market, and we'll get to that. But I want you to weigh in here first on one of the issues that pervades the policy discussions over whether to uh, continue the enhanced jobless benefits. Uh, At issue is whether we continue to give people $600 a week or less in, given the environment we're in where people can't work because of COVID-19. There's this thinking that the additional $600 a week uh, keeps people from seeking work because they get paid more uh, being on the dole than if they were working. You have a PhD in economics. Is that the case? Is, is that something that disincentivizes people from working? Is that what we're seeing now? I would argue that there are not a lot of jobs available right now. It's the virus that's keeping people from working. 
Garlic, good to talk to you again. Um, I think the main thing holding back the job market right now um, is that there's not enough jobs and not enough hiring. We see on our site, and indeed, that job postings are down uh, by more than 20% uh, relative to the trend last year. Uh, and in lots of industries, um, they're down by much more than that. They're down by half in hospitality and tourism. Um, if there aren't enough jobs uh, that are hiring, um, then uh, the main concern uh, shouldn't be um, whether uh, the unemployment benefits uh, might be discouraging people from working. Um, people want to work. Um, if their health insurance depends on it, in a pandemic, people definitely want to work. Uh, so the biggest issue is uh, the lack of demand, um, not uh, uh, workers being unwilling um, to go back to work. So, Jed, tell us more about what you're seeing through the data, because one of the reasons we love talking to you is exactly what you alluded to, which is you have a window into the hiring environment and so many of the levers being pulled or not that few do. So tell us more what you're learning. So we track very closely what's happening with job postings on our site. Uh, We see uh, the vast majority of job postings um, that are up uh, from lots of different sources. There are some industries uh, where uh, hiring has fallen um, with a little rebound. Uh, So hospitality and tourism, of course, the hardest hit sector. Um, There are some sectors, though, uh, that saw a huge decline right away but have rebounded. Uh, The types of businesses that uh, shut down and then reopened. So beauty and wellness jobs uh, like hair salons. Um, Lots of retail jobs uh, have seen a rebound in hiring. Um, But most concerning um, is that there are other sectors that were not the ones shut down by the virus, uh, tech, finance, you know, the types of jobs um, that typically can be done from home. Um, in those sectors, job postings are down by mm. more than a third still. Those are sectors um, that aren't as volatile. Um, those are sectors where the hiring depends more on what companies expect the economy is going to look like a year or two from now. Um, and that's a red flag in the labor market today. And those are high income jobs as well. I, I wonder when you look at job postings, uh, things were looking pretty good from May until about early June. And then since then, we've seen this wave of, of infection sweep across the nation, certainly uh, parts of the South and parts of the West. Have we seen postings move as a result of this latest wave? Overall, Uh, Job postings have been gradually improving from its worst point in early May, but the mix of jobs has changed a bit. Um, In the past few weeks, the types of jobs that have really driven that increase in job postings are uh, some of the virus-related sectors. So we've seen an increase in jobs in pharmacy, medical technicians, and nursing, um, as well as insurance. There are obviously lots of insurance claims Um, that will need to be dealt with, um, as well as cleaning and sanitation jobs. Mm. Um, There are other kinds of jobs where we haven't seen uh, much improvement in the past few weeks. Uh, The trend is flat or even down in a lot of office jobs, like legal, um, IT help desk, accounting, and marketing. And Jed, as we look across this sort of surge, we don't even think it's a second wave at this point. That still may be coming And as you look across geographies, are you seeing the effect of essentially re-shutdowns yet? Or is that still to come in terms of 
the labor market? Good question. Yeah, so we are starting to see uh, the trend in job postings um, weakening a bit um, in the types of metros that saw that, that have, uh, experienced a surge this summer. Um, notably, uh, job postings in Miami um, started backsliding uh, in the past couple of weeks. Um, in most places, though, um, we have seen improvement, especially in smaller places, um, uh, smaller towns, uh, small metro areas. Uh, they've seen a bigger rebound uh, in job postings than some of the larger metro areas where more people can work from home. Mm. Uh, one of the big differences uh, across places uh, is that in the types of metros where people can work from home, um, they are not going to restaurants. They are not shopping. And so in some of those expensive uh, tech hubs, finance centers, um, in those places like New York and San Francisco, that's where retail jobs and restaurant jobs are suffering um, yeah. because their customers aren't um, uh, out and about. Yeah. They're able to work from home. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah, these knock-on economic effects and labor effects are really um, fascinating and candidly troubling when we really break it down. Thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. Jed Kolko, Chief Economist for Indeed, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. And I think about this a lot, Scarlett. I mean, I, you know, you and I are fortunate to live in very nice towns in the New York suburbs and work in New York City. But we've both seen, I think, our own lives and behaviors of those around us dramatically yeah. change like where we shop when we shop and how much we spend everyone's lives has been disrupted by this by this virus and I wonder as well with the job market being the way it is typically people tend to go back to school in this kind of environment right they get another degree yeah. if they can afford it or they take out Good loans point. for that we have no idea what school will look like. So what does that mean in this instance? You don't have a job. You would want to go back to school. You're not going to go back to school because right. it would be remote. What do you do? Yeah, I know. I know. And the knock-on effects of all of that, even the not going back to school, and you think about these college towns and everything else. Yeah. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close here on this Tuesday afternoon. We're 11 minutes away for the close of trading here in the U.S. Let's bring in Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer for Hightower RDM Financial Group. He joins us on the phone from lovely Westport, Connecticut. Michael, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. So how about yourself? Not bad, not bad. Happy to be here with you and Scarlett Fu. So let me ask you this. This is a big week, and we were talking about this at the top of the show. We've got the Fed. We've got earnings. We've got negotiations in Washington about the stimulus, continuing stimulus, what happens next. And we've also got a surging virus. What's the most important thing for you to watch? Um, well, as you said right now, the market is really just focused on a few things. It's focused on second quarter earnings the latest economic data, of which there's quite a bit this week. The stimulus package in Washington is certainly front and center, and also the number of new cases. So all of those are playing a role. Um, in terms of the most important thing right now, 
I think investors are probably focusing more in the stimulus package, although all of those are certainly playing a role. In terms of, in terms of the markets, uh, we've started to see some weakening in some of the high-frequency data. Uh, for example, weekly jobless claims, which had risen for, I think it was 14 or 15 consecutive weeks, uh, rose last month, or last week, excuse me, for the first time. And there's some fear that if Congress doesn't act at the end and the number of cases continue to go up, that the economy could slow down somewhat or the recovery could slow. But offsetting that, the important thing is that until the economy is really on, on stronger footing, we'll con- probably continue to get uh, fiscal stimulus and monetary support from the Fed and Congress over the next several months. I'm looking at markets right now. The equity indexes are sinking to their session lows, ex- extending losses with the Nasdaq off by 1.2%. Uh, the dollar is weaker right now and hasn't really moved a whole lot. The 10-year yield just below 58 basis points, uh, pretty much stuck in the range it's been in for the last couple of weeks, uh, right around that 60 basis point level. Michael, looking at the volume here, it is noticeably light, uh, off about 10% uh, in the case of the Nasdaq from the five-day average, which already has come down quite a bit from the heyday in June and May. What is it going to take for people to actually participate in this market, or a lot of people sitting this out right now as we wait for uh, clarity on, for instance, the virus uh, from the Federal Reserve? Well, it's important to know, typically in the summertime, volume does slow down. Um, In most years, people go away on vacation. Uh, This year is obviously a little bit different. People are taking different types of trips. Maybe they're driving somewhere instead of flying. So I wouldn't be surprised to see somewhat of a range band market over the next few months. There are a lot of different uh, moving parts right now, as you just pointed out. And until we get better clarity on the number of cases and Fed policy, uh, excuse me, on on stimulus from Congress and and what the earnings outlook is really going to be going forward, Uh, We could very well be in a range-bound market, and we also have the election coming up, Mm. which is another issue that investors are talking about. So there are plenty of things to sort of worry about. Our feeling is that as you look ahead over the next 12 to 18 months, that the economic expansion will continue, but it likely will have some bumps along the way and probably won't be a straight line. Talk more about the election, Michael, because I feel like in any normal presidential election year, that, that'd be all we were talking about right now. I mean, it's the end of July. We'd be headed into convention season. So much would be uh, on the table. What are investors saying as we get toward, really, I mean, we're under 100 days to the presidential election here? Yeah, uh, we look back at history, and typically the markets don't tend to react to the election until sometime in August and then you start to see some movements. This is clearly a pretty high-profile election coming up. Um, At least until we have more information, we think it's probably important for investors not to overreact at this point. Um, Obviously, a lot of people thought the markets would sell sell off after Trump was elected several years ago, and clearly that didn't happen. I think right now there's a lot of fear that Biden and the Democrats are going to increase regulation and raise taxes. However, there are some offsets to that. For example, Biden has talked about bringing jobs back from overseas, increasing the number of manufacturing jobs. He's talked about infrastructure. Um, so there are areas of the economy that would actually benefit, and we could have better trade policy with our, with our neighbors. These are all possibilities. So at this point, at least, we think it's probably premature to sort of overreact, but these are things we are thinking about. Are you thinking about the possibility of a contested election? We might not get an answer for weeks, if not months. It's hard to believe we might be going back to, the, I think, what do they call them, the hanging chads when, mm-hmm. um, uh, several years ago in Florida. Um, 
we really don't know the answer to that at this point. Um, there's also the possibility that, that Trump may challenge people's ability to actually uh, mail-in ballots. But at this point, we're just hoping we get uh, a new president and we get the leaders of Congress, and we'll figure out from there how that will affect the economy and, importantly, any changes we might want to make to our investment portfolios. Michael, one last question for you before we let you go and get to the close of trading tech stocks. Dave Wilson made the point at the top of the show that, I mean, they, between testimony on Capitol Hill tomorrow and big earnings from a bunch of the fangs on Thursday, really are incredibly important to watch from so many aspects. How do you think about tech right now in a, in a minute or less? So I'll, I'll tell you, the two sectors of the market that we favor the most are technology. Uh, they're benefiting from defensive growth characteristics. They have the strongest balance sheet in the S&P 500. Some of them are benefiting from the new sort of work-at-home mentality. And then we also like healthcare, which is trading at a discount to the S&P 500 and is sort of our GARP or growth at a reasonable price. Um, some of the technology stocks have gone up quite a bit, and they are growing uh, to offset that increase in P.E., but we think they're important to have as part of the growth side of a portfolio within a diversified investment portfolio. All right. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Good luck with the rest of a very busy week. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer for Hightower RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport. And, Scar, I'm glad you mentioned that sort of going into this segment. I mean, stocks really are, I mean, bouncing, at least in the S&P's case, bouncing along their lows of the session and really took uh, a leg down there in the last half hour or so, it looks like. Yeah, we've seen pretty much a straight line down um, since 3 p.m., and uh, nothing's really kind of halted it. I don't see any headlines crossing that's really encouraging it, but as we've been talking about, the volume is not there, yeah. so moves tend to get exaggerated. Uh, when it comes to market breadth, you have three stocks down for every two that are higher on the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, the number... In, in terms of the actual index levels, it looks probably a little bit worse than how it, it actually is once you get beneath the numbers. But yeah. nonetheless, a down day here on Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.